Hello and welcome to episode three of the Reconciliation Project. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Mendoza, and uh, as always, if you have thoughts on any of the episodes or want to share any stories of personal reconciliation, either your own spiritual reconciliation or reconciliation with others, send us an email at thereconciliationpodcast at gmail.com. So we left off last episode looking at how different beliefs around creation, the science of the Big Bang Theory, the opening lines of the Bible, Hinduism, Native American tradition, all have a concept for some sort of unifying energy, spirit, or God that connects all life. Leaving the first two episodes with an agreement that there is a God, that we're called to a higher self, begs the question, why can't we get there? So today I want to look at another unifying concept at the other end of the emotional spectrum that can either swiftly or slowly erode our faith, or if not erode our faith in the abstract, erode our ability to act on it. Specifically, I'm talking about burnout. Exhaustion. Feeling overworked, like there isn't enough time like you can never be productive enough, always something more to do. I'm guessing no one listening to this podcast has ever struggled with this feeling, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. And in today's episode, I'm going to start with that feeling and talk about how the solution can be traced back to one of the creation beliefs we talked about previously, dive back into psychology and the structure of the brain, and then tie all this to a concept that's a political lightning rod right now. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Trust me, all these things, creation, burnout, the human brain, and DEI, are all very related and can be reconciled. Here's episode three of the Reconciliation Project. So, picking up on the rest of Genesis chapter one and a little bit of chapter two in the Bible, Uh, One of the broader goals of this podcast is opening a space for dialogue around faith and spirituality and clearing up misconceptions about the Bible. For today's topic, I'm going to draw heavily from the Bema podcast led by Marty Solomon. The first several episodes of his podcast cover Genesis chapter 1 in depth. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, this is the part where the world is created in seven days. The first major point is that Genesis 1 is not capital N, capital O, capital T, a lab report. Believing in Genesis does not mean you literally think the earth was created in seven 24-hour days. It can't be a literal story. Plants are created on day three. The sun is created on day four. Genesis 1 is a poem. That's right, a poem. Because it is a poem, it has a structure. The first three days are about separating things. Day from night, water from water, water from land. The next three days are about filling the spaces created in the first three days. Day one corresponds to day four, day two corresponds to day five, and day three corresponds to day six. For those of you not familiar with it, I'm going to quote directly. This is Genesis 1-4, directly after Let There Be Light, which is Genesis 1-3 that we talked about in an early episode. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now I'm going to skip ahead to day four, the corresponding day. Genesis 1.14, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred time and 
to times and days and years. God creates day and night and then fills them with stars and lights, the sun and the moon. God creates the seas and the skies and fills them with the fish and the birds. God creates the land and then fills it with plants and animals. Additionally, there's a a refrain throughout the poem, and God saw that it was good. After God creates things, he says, and God saw that it was good. Hopefully I've convinced you Genesis 1 is a poem. How does the poem end? With the seventh day. But what happens on the seventh day? God rests. This is actually Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. That's it. The poem ends there. There's no eighth day. God is resting. What do we talk about in the opening? Burnouts. Feeling like there's not enough hours in the day, insatiable productivity. Yet at the end of biblical creation, there is God resting. To reinforce the point, let's take the poetry analysis to another level. In ancient Hebrew, there was a poetic structure called a chiasm. It's a poetic structure where the whole poem revolves around a center point, literally the center word, and this word holds the key to unlocking the meaning of the poem. There are different types of chiasms and different structures, and if you want to dive into them, listen to the Baymaw podcast or research it yourself, but take my word for it. Genesis 1 isn't just a poem, it's also a chiasm. So what's in the center of the chiasm? What is literally the fulcrum of this story? The Hebrew word is moad. The word has different translations into English based on context, but it can be translated Sabbath, day of rest. The key spiritual lesson of Genesis 1 and the creation story of the Bible is the Sabbath. It is spiritual rest. It is disconnecting from the world and breaking that feeling of burnout, of being overworked, of never having enough time. The key to overcoming the anxiety of not producing enough, not being enough, is to stop trying. And, if you're Christian or Jewish, trusting the God of the Bible. I could go much more on this topic, and we will leave more, weave more in later in the episode, but the first major point is that the opening poem of the Bible isn't about the specific order of creation. It is about a God who calls creation good and who rests. The headline takeaway to the reader of the poem is the centrality of the Sabbath and spiritual rest in the goodness of creation. So, The Bible tells me I should just take a day off every week? Yes! But it's much more than that. And to prove that, I want to talk to you about how your brain works, about psychology. Why? Because psychology is going to help us understand why a day off of just watching TV, scrolling social media, and maybe taking a nap isn't true rest. True rest must be intentional to slow your brain down. For this part of the podcast, I'm going to borrow heavily from the book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman explains that your brain has what he calls two separate systems, System 1 and System 2. System 1 is your base order thinking, your instinct, quick reaction, no analysis. 
System two is your higher order thinking. System two is slower, deliberate, and supplies critical thinking. This is the same thing as the old brain and new brain we explored in episode one. System one is your old brain. System two is your new brain. Same thing. The revealing thing, the revealing thing from this book is not about the basic structure, but it's about how the two systems relate. System one is always on. It is a veritable fire hose of information and mental associations from system one to system two. Everything around you is taken in through your senses, processed through a network of ideas and associations that are formed based on our life experience and drives our actions. System one is flooding system two. That's how your brain works. The key takeaway also is that humans, you, me, everyone around the world, apply a, low, a whole lot less of system two critical thinking than we might assume. System two is, in Kahneman's words, lazy. System two has what Kahneman calls limited bandwidth. And we do not, I repeat, do not, critically analyze the vast majority of associations and informations being fed from system one from system two before acting on them. In fact, we aren't even conscious of the association system one has made in our brain based on our surroundings most of the time. This is the same line of explanation that the old brain floods us and we can't by human, pure human willpower regulate everything in relationship. So to add a little more detail, Kahneman describes a phenomenon called mental priming, where just seeing certain images in your periphery or hearing certain words in passing conversations changes how you react to the next event. The most striking example of this to me was money. When people are mentally primed with images associated with money or with words or phrases associated with money, they become more selfish, more isolationist, and interestingly, show higher perseverance. I'm talking about a psychological experiment where there was a computer screen in the background that had dollar signs on it. That kind of background imagery, that innocent background item, skews people's behavior. Your system one is taking in the world around you and flooding system two, and you're not even aware of it. Our first episodes talked about strong emotions from the old brain to the new brain, from system one to system two. Kahneman explores much more subtle relationships between the two in the mundane nature of everyday life. You're probably wondering yourself, why does all this matter? And how does it relate to the Sabbath? We're going to dive into that in the second part of the episode. Recapping where we left off, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman explains how the structure of the brain leads us to being shaped and influenced by our unconscious associations without us realizing it. He describes the brain as having system one beneath the surface and system two as our higher order thinking. He says that system one is constantly flooding system two with associations and emotions. We also talked about the Sabbath 
and true spiritual rest. Here's where we connect the dots. True spiritual rest, neurologically speaking, is about slowing down enough to understand what's flowing from system one to system two and consciously deciding if the associations and emotions underneath are aligned with who you want to be. To start to understand and then break these associations, we have to turn off the cultural inputs and also allow our entire system to bandwidth to be applied to looking at what's coming in from system one. If you prefer these terms, think of it as being mindful. Eastern traditions of meditation talk about disassociating from your thoughts and visualizing them as a river, but then not reacting to this river with emotion. This is stopping the external stimulus flood into your system one and allowing your system two to actually look at what's coming from your system one. These traditions of meditation are allowing your system two to understand what is underneath the hood in your mind. This is the way the brain works. True Sabbath is a systematic practice that will help you start to see below your hyper-busy consciousness mind. Sabbath is about spiritual rest. Sabbath is a spiritual mechanism to peer into your system one brain and look at it. Sabbath is a process through which you can start to heal your old brain. There's a fantastic book called Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann. It makes the direct point that all of the biblical teachings about the Sabbath are essentially anti-capitalism. The spiritual message underneath the Sabbath is the antithesis of the message. You have to work harder than everyone else. The message, hard work is the path to success. The message that may have started out as empowering, but now has trapped many Americans in a cycle of anxiety and stress. Brugman says, and I'm quoting here, the divine rest on the seventh day of creation has made clear that Yahweh, the Jewish God, is not a workaholic, that Yahweh is not anxious about the full function of creation, and that the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work. There you go. You may not believe in the Bible, but you can believe in the statement, the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work. For those of you out there that may consider yourself spiritual but not religious, if you heard someone say, the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work, how would you react? Probably positively. So if you can believe that statement, the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work, as someone who's spiritual but not religious, you now have a very common ground to talk to a person of Jewish or Christian faith about how to not feel overworked. Common ground. 
and the idea of the Sabbath. You have a common ground to talk about how to break from culture and the constant external stimulus. You have a common ground to talk about how to ultimately stop letting culture shape you because you have a common goal of breaking from culture and applying system to your new brain, critical thought, to your underlying thoughts which drive your actions. So as we will do here in the Reconciliation Project, I'm going to take this common ground and wade into divisive waters. Let's try and reconcile something, a topic you may not think about or try and avoid. D-E-I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right now, your system one is probably fed an immediate map of reactions and assumptions and emotions into your system two. That's okay. Let's all take a deep breath. The first step in any DEI initiative is to simply raise awareness. Raise awareness of the fact that despite lots of progress, there are still tremendous racial and gender disparities in America. From poverty rates to health outcomes to incarcerations, there are vast racial disparities. Furthermore, these racial disparities are continued subconsciously. We're talking about system one brain here. If they aren't actively challenged, An article in Scientific America does a great job of summarizing the reality that real-world studies bear out what is called implicit bias. I'm quoting from a 2018 Scientific America here. White applicants get about 50% more callbacks than black applicants with the same resumes. College professors are 26% more likely to respond to a student's email when it is signed by Brad rather than Lamar. And physicians recommend less pain medication for black patients than for white patients with the same injury. Implicit bias. Another word for system one thinking that is not critically analyzed by system two. We all have this implicit bias. It's inevitable. Implicit bias does not make you a bad person. But implicit bias throughout a broad population at its worst is a key mechanism in allowing structural inequalities to go unaddressed. In a previous job I had with a large company, I went through an implicit bias training driven by the HR department. Maybe you just rolled your eyes, but it was very helpful. Training like the ones I took focus on key actions people take in corporate America around recruiting new talent, promoting people, and giving out bonuses. They give, it, they give examples of implicit bias and are meant to open people's eyes. I'm going to quote Kahneman here. Biases cannot always be avoided because system two may have no clue to the error. Errors can only be prevented by enhanced monitoring and effortful activity of system two. So these types of implicit bias training as part of broader DEI initiatives are meant to activate system two thinking around interviewing, promoting, staff reviews, key corporate activities. You can't eliminate all bias, but you can activate system two at these critical points. That quote from Kahneman isn't about DEI, but it could be. DEI also covers more active initiatives and goals to make leadership more representative of the overall population. I'm going to reread a quote from earlier, Kahneman. The main function of system one is to maintain and update a model of your personal world, which represents what normal is. 
As these links are formed and strengthened, the pattern of associated ideas come to represent the structure of events in your life, and it determines your interpretation of the present as well as your expectation of the future. What this is telling you is that what you observe naturally becomes what you expect. If you observe a leadership team in corporate America that isn't representative of the employee population or of the general population, that's what you come to expect. This is how the brain works. Having representation at the leadership level is about changing people's expectations of what's possible. It's about hope. It's about rewiring people's system one brain. DEI is about challenging people's system one brain. It's about applying system two critical thinking at key junctures, but also changing people's mental associations and mental maps. You have to do it actively. It doesn't happen by magic. You have to do it actively. You know what else is about changing people's system one brain? The Sabbath. Take a true Sabbath one day a week. Unplug. And when you're on your Sabbath, think about the concepts of DEI. Open yourself up to the fact that you will have, despite your best intentions, some level of implicit bias. Think about the level of disparity and injustice that exists today. Think about areas in your work or in your social life where you want to start applying more system two bandwidth to make sure you aren't acting out of bias. Are you in charge of hiring or firing people? Are you in sales where you deal with lots of customers and continuously decide who to give more or less attention to? How are you interacting with those around you? At what mental pace can you slow down? If you consciously Sabbath and break from a culture that is focused on self-achievement, on more, 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 if you consciously slow your thoughts down and look at them without a flood of external input, if you consciously acknowledge that there are unequal outcomes in our society and that your own sphere of influence you can help, things can start to change. So for those of you that we want to achieve, achieve social justice and make change, think about how people's biases came to be. Don't use kid gloves. Call out discrimination and unequal treatment when you see it. But understand how the mind works. Understand that the struggle against overt racism is still there, but the larger struggle is against implicit bias, system one thinking. And in that struggle, you have an unexpected ally. The Sabbath. This all sounds good, but... Bias against people of other races has existed since the dawn of recorded history. Why? Is it some evolutionary function of my tribe versus you tribe, your tribe? Is it an evolutionary relic of the fight over the best hunting grounds? Where did these biases start from? Why did people come to see each other as separate from one another instead of just all working together for the common good? Where did the connection to the universal energy we explored in the last episode the separation from the breath of God that gave us life. The separation from the Brahmin. Where did that come from? Huh. So you mean to ask, what, what was the first separation? The first time people saw each other as different? Are you asking about how a mindset of scarcity and lack came into being? Perhaps even deeper. You're asking where evil comes from. Good thing we have more episodes on the Reconciliation Podcast. 
Thank you for listening to The Reconciliation Project. If you like the show, please go ahead and hit subscribe. This is a passion project for me, so we won't have any regular episode release schedule. I will try and release things at least quarterly, but I have a wife and two kids and work and all of the normal things that keep people busy in this life, so there will not be any regular releases. I may end up releasing batches of episodes when I feel like I've covered a topic, so if you if you like the show, please hit subscribe so that when the new episodes do drop, you'll get notified in your feed and you can enjoy more of The Reconciliation Project.